Thanks for listening to another podcast from C3 Calgary West. Our hope is that this message will equip and inspire you in your walk with God. For more information about our church, check out our website at myc3church.ca or find us on Instagram at C3 Calgary West. Right. Morning, everybody. Welcome to church. And uh, contrary to my son, I love all the seasons, but this is a bit early for winter for me, frankly. And, um, and anyway, I'm happy to be able to show up this morning and be here. want to welcome everybody. We were in Toronto last weekend and um, had a sensational time with the church there. What growth is taking place in Toronto. Pastor Kelly preached a smoking message. We, they have five services, and um, we did three of them. And, um, and in, um, across the three of the five, I think there was 1,300 people together and 37 first-time decisions for Christ. Um, it's really remarkable. And to see our team thrive right there, I think that that's, that's exceptional. Anyway, let me get into this, uh, the talk today. I want to thank uh, Matt for doing a, a great job last week, right? Pre- uh, and, uh, and we're just going to try to carry on on the game plan from Nehemiah. And um, sometimes when you put yourself into an exegetical uh, theme, you have to kind of look a little harder under the, under the scriptures to find out what actually fits with our people. So for me, I ask the Lord, what's he saying to me? I try to read the Bible, uh, first of all, for me. And uh, then I try to say, Lord, what are you saying to our people? Because each week I have to share something reasonably intelligent and semi-logical and th- that would help people. And so, um, so I feel like I got, I got something this morning for you from Nehemiah. Uh, chapter t- 3, and I've entitled my message, There's No Team in I. We, 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 we see what happened, like the, a little bit of the, yeah, I know it's profound, isn't it? Here's what I find, because when we were looking at the, the story of Nehemiah and him rebuilding the walls, we're actually using that as a theme of rebuilding our life. Nehemiah is a type of the Holy Spirit, his name means comforter. And when he comes into our life, he reveals areas of brokenness. Uh, not, not to shame us, but to invite us into rebuilding those walls and rebuilding those gates in our life. And we all have walls and gates that are burnt down. Uh, we found the first thing that took place in Nehemiah's life is God stirred passion in his heart. And the first week we looked at what's, what's the passion that you have in your heart? What moves you? What makes you? What moves you to tears? And what, what are the things that stir deeply within your heart? And I believe God places a key to passion in each one of our hearts. And then what Nehemiah did, wouldn't you know it, he prayed. He had a five to six month prayer meeting. And during that time, God revealed to him some of the strategies for some of the next steps. And uh, I was lamenting about some of our next steps as we plan on expanding our locations. If anybody has any, any friends in, in the south area, uh, we would like to get their emails and uh, we'll be sending them uh, inv- invitations to an interest meeting for, uh, in the south um, but then he, but, but for me, as I was uh, explaining to our people about when the Lord begins to show, he shows us stuff, um, what's the next step? And I actually don't know the next step. So what I've done is I've invited our church to six months of prayer. And I believe in those times that God will show us. And if you'd like to be interested in part of that, praying for our city, for his heart for our city, and his heart for expansion in our city, you just simply send your email to Uprising at myc3church.ca, and we'll include you in that. And the next thing he does, I think, 
he, he, after prayer, he went to the king. He got permission. He went through authorized channels of what he should do. And, and when he got permission, he also received provision. And he got all the lumber that was needed to rebuild the gates and the walls. And then, then the thing that we're looking at today is about, then he connected him to his people. And uh, I hope that this morning is inspirational to you. Uh, it's a little bit convicting to me. But I do believe that God connects us to people to fulfill our purpose on the earth, that we, it needs to be bigger than just us. So my message, thus the title, there's no team in I. I want you to um, just think, as you take your Bibles and turn, I haven't put this on the overhead because there's like 30 scriptures, and I'm probably not going to read them all. Uh, I've read through this a number of times, and I encourage you to have a look at chapter 3 of Nehemiah. But I was thinking of Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 38 where it says, Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates and waiting at my doorposts. It's like like our relationship with the Lord has gates and walls as well. And uh, I found that a very encouraging picture. I see that when I start to look at some of the next steps for you and I, I start to think of where, how are we going to do this and and what's going to be some of the enemies of us fulfilling the mandate of this church? And one of them clearly is disagreement. Uh, the, one of the greatest powers on earth is agreement. Uh, when, you, when you and your spouse in your home is disagreement, the, the house can't move forward. And so looking for unity, which is why it's such an important thing of, of keeping the unity of the Spirit, which I think unity is a function of the Holy Spirit in our life, when the Holy Spirit's present, that there's unity. Now, here's what's going to happen when we begin to find our people, because relationships are mirrors in our life. Um, you, you may have found in the past that the enemy tries to disconnect you from your people, and if he can, he'll disconnect you from your future, from your purpose, from fulfilling the work that God has for you on the earth. So I just want to look at that this morning, and then we'll look at rebuilding uh, the, the, um, the wa- our walls, and uh, I'll look at the gates a little bit. But I want to talk about, first of all, the culture of connectedness. One of the things that we find in, uh, in the story of Nehemiah, particularly this one, is um, how important it was that each one do their own special part. Each one of us is called to do a specific something. <laughs> and when, when the Lord is rebuilding your life, he'll bring people around you who have skills and insights and abilities that you don't have. And so we need others. Pastor Phil would say that 90% of your destiny is held in the hands of other people. So when he wants to accomplish something in your life, he uses people. There's promises for you and I, but in order for them to be fulfilled, he requires that we connect with others. And so then what happens is for you and I, the, the assignment that's against your connectedness becomes your enemy. John chapter 15 says that you won't be fruitful if you disconnect from the vine. We connect to the vine by being connected to others. And so this is a critical role for you and I to play. Um, I think an enemy of authentic spirituality is superficiality. It's very easy for us to be together but not connected. You can have a bunch of friends on Facebook You can have a bunch of likes on Instagram. You can have a bunch of acquaintances, but still be superficial. You can still be disconnected. Um, 
We're told one of the things we're to do to one another is confess our sin one to another. This is a problem, I find, for me. Because I don't like to expose weaknesses, especially sinfulness. It can create huge problems for people, I think, if they're going to trust you. But the fact is when people drop their guards and are honest with one another, I found that my respect for them goes up. It doesn't go down. (laughs) It's interesting that we can can go to a mechanic and tell them the problem with our car, but we can't go to a brother and share our weaknesses with them for some strange reason of fear of being exposed or something. This, this, we have a problem. It's not a sin problem specifically. That's universal. The problem is not wanting to talk about our brokenness or our fallenness. That's a problem. We're to confess our sins one to another that we might be healed. What if healing is withheld because of our lack of courage by, of sharing what's actually going on in your heart? This is a thing to me. It's not that we have sin in our lives, but that we pretend that we don't have it in our lives and, and that we can't talk about it. Um, it was, it was uh, interesting to me. It was actually a bit revealing to me. Uh, I went to the doctor for a physical. He had cut some barnacles off my body. He, he, called, he said, at your age, they're called barnacles. I said, shut up. Like, not that old. 60s and new 40, remember? Um, and anyway, you know what I, I found myself doing? I, I, I wanted to tell him, I wanted to tell him the, about, the, about the issues that I used to have. We actually, so I don't know if you, you found that when you're talking to, here's what I was doing, is I found myself ta- talking to my doctor and telling him how healthy I was rather than admitting the issues that I really had. Isn't that, a, it was just a strange thing. Here's somebody who could help me. It's kind of like, it's sort of like we come to church, but we don't want to admit that we need the church, <laughs> that we don't need one another, really. I'm going to read some one another's at the end of the talk this morning. But I found it's interesting, my, 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 my dexterity and my skill of hiding my dysfunction, getting good at it. And, uh, but, but I find that, that uh, in, it, particularly for me, that I would say that denial is a counterfeit of faith. And that for Nehemiah to have a look at the situation, it didn't deter his faith. That there's a problem doesn't minimize faith. It just doesn't allow fear to have the strongest influence is all. Because fear is typically quite present in our lives. I think it would be interesting if liars' pants actually did catch on fire. I think that would be an interesting thing in life. I want to I just scoot through the rebuilding of these gates here in chapter 3. Uh, I hope you read it, but I'll tell you what happened, and I'm just going to go kind of quickly. The, there was more than 10 gates. He names 10 gates. He talks about 10 gates that were be, needed to be repaired, 42 group, groups of people. He named 38 people, and he finished the project in 52 days. Nehemiah had a strategy, but Nehemiah could never have done this on his own. The mission and the, and, the, and the destiny that God has called you to, to do and fulfill on the earth, you'll never be able to do it alone. Sadly, you're going to have to admit that we need others. It's not good for man or woman to be alone. 
because we're intended to be connected in fellowship, in community, and in uh, authentic relationships. Chapter 3, then Eliashab, the high priest, and the other priest started to rebuild at the Sheep Gate. This is interesting for this reason, is that it was the priests that took the first step. I think it's important as spiritual leaders that we go first. That's what a leader, the definition of a leader is, uh, is we go first. Um, they, the, sh- the gate that they chose to pick was the sheep gate. Why do you think it was the sheep gate? As the priests, they identified with uh, sheep. This is, this, is, this is the gate where just outside of the sheep gate was the pastures where they kept the animals for sacrifice. And so... <laughs> So that doesn't translate well into current terms, but um, sheep were, you know. But in those days, back in the day, of course, sheep were meant for sacrifice. And so the sheep, sheep gate was repaired by the priests. I think this was interesting that they identified with that gate. There should be a gate that you and I identify with specifically, and we take it as our personal assignment to fulfill the role. They dedicated it. They set it up. Doors, built the walls as far as the Tower of the Hundred. Uh, which was a, wasn't exactly a gate, but they, they rebuilt a couple of towers too, which were places of security um, where they would fight from, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hananel. People from the city of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zechar, the son of Imri. And then it was the fish gate was next. So he started in the north, and then they're moving to the west. Uh, I don't think that has any specific bearing, not specifically, But what's interesting to me here is that people came from outside to help fulfill the vision. These people came from Jericho. You'll notice all through it that that even though the people didn't specifically live there, they got attracted to the vision that was there. This is what's going to happen with our church. Actually, it's happening right now. That people identify with the mission and the vision even though they're not currently here. It's okay. And they came from quite a ways away. I think that this is interesting to me. And, um, and I think that this, this whole the first verse about the priests, I think how interesting that specific area is. Um, sadly, later on in the book of Nehemiah, the priests ally themselves with the enemy, with Sanballat. And uh, we'll find that even though they started strong, his grandson married the daughter of Sanballat, which is when the family had the potential of both incredible blessing uh, or chaos, turned into chaos at the end. Um, This gate reminds us that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the earth. Um, He would be the, the, this chapter starts with the sheep gate and the last verse uh, ends with the sheep gate. Jesus is the Alpha and he is the Omega. His name is Jesus. That's, that's I love, one of the reasons I love that song. The next gate is the fish gate. This should, if anybody been to Seattle, you'll notice where they throw the fish. This was, this was like that. It was kind of like a fish market was set up there. The fish gate. Um, it ha- and then the two towers. This would be classified a little bit more like the evangelism gate, I suppose. They did the whole thing. They laid the beams, hung the doors, put the bolts and bars in place. And uh, I love that. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, and the grandson, Hakor, repaired them together. It's good that a grandpa and a grandson are on a building project together. Um, I just think that's endearing. I like the idea. Uh, beside him was Meshulah, the son of Barakai, and his grandson as well. It was a real grandpa-grandson project. Um, no specific bearing, but just interesting. Uh, but then it says, then it says here, um, 
in verse, uh, help me, Lord, where I was on my notes. Yeah, verse 5. Next were the people from Tekoa, though their leaders refused to help. Tekoa was about 11 miles away. Somehow the leaders felt a little bit hoity-toity or whatever and decided they didn't want to chip a nail or just didn't want to show up for the project. But the people of Tekoa did. I think that's interesting. You'll find as you read through the chapter, you'll find a couple of things will stand out. Particular people uh, became passionate about specific gates. You'll find that it wasn't, they all weren't specifically construction workers. They were just people who wanted to be part of a great mission or a great mandate. <laughs> and, uh, and you'll find that through, throughout the chapter that there were some that had to build a couple of gates because somebody didn't want to do the work. This happens in building the church. There's specific areas. When we have prayer nights, I say, go to an area that you feel passionate about. We'll go to different areas. Some pray over the finances. They're passionate about it. That's perfect. Some are passionate about kids. Some are passionate about good sound. Some are passionate simply about caffeine. It's, oh, it doesn't matter. You be passionate about something. But it, that's what happens. And if we, when we do our part, the whole job gets completed. When we're not available, we don't do our part. Somebody else has to do our part. It's the only way it works. Corinthians would talk about the body, how it functions. Not, we're not all one part. We're all different parts. And it's beautiful that we're all different parts. I love the diversity of the body of Christ. We should, none of us should all think the same. None of you should have the same thoughts as I do, or else one of us isn't necessary. You, you should have different thoughts and different opinions and different ideas and different revelations. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't need to separate us. We can be unified in spite of our diversity. doesn't matter. It's good. You need to learn to get along with the person beside you on the, uh, that's working on the wall. There's a, there's a few little amens. It's a bit hushy in there. But, but here's, you just keep reading. I'm fascinated about some of this stuff. Verse, verse 8, it talks about the, they're going on, they're building the old city gate. It's interesting to me. I don't know if this is important or not, but the old city gate led to the new area in Jerusalem. I get so upset with people who think we don't need the Old Testament. It's what leads us into the New Testament. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The old leads into the new. Jesus is all through the Old Testament, if you've got eyes to see. And it's about, he's the center point of history. He is the word. So the old gate led into the new part of Jerusalem. If you see a picture of the wall during Nehemiah's time, you'll find that they're repairing the old gates. But it leads into the new area, the new part of uh, Jerusalem. I'm a little bit passionate about different things, aren't I? Verse 8, then, then, then Uziel, the son of Harshiah, a goldsmith by trade. Here's somebody who would have a monocle on and he'd be looking at little, you know, making little gold things. But he's out on the wall grabbing chunks of cement and he's doing it anyway. It would have been easy for him to say, you know, my fingers and my calling and my gifting, they're meant for little intricacies. Intricacies, that's a word altogether. Intricacies. My hands are made and my eyes are made for these little things. But he said, that's okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to set my preference aside, and I'm going to help be part of the big solution. I love that. And the next guy, if you look in verse uh, 9, because you all have your Bible and you're following along line by line, I know behind him was a manufacturer of perfumes. Here we have, you know, a perfumer. Chanel and Gucci and 
Varvatos, and he's somebody he's me. He's he hasn't picked up anything heavier than a few ounces, and but he's on the construction project. I love it. Everybody's important. Every every gift, every talent, every it's all important. Um, and then they get to the valley gate, 500 yards from the dung gate. Uh, I see in verse um, about 13, it's interesting that the valley gate, they just hung the doors, and they said they also repaired the 1,500 feet in the wall towards the dung gate. It probably wasn't too much damage. 1,500 feet, that's a long stretch. For some of them, they're just you know, picking up doors and hanging them up. For, for them, they, the 1,500 feet towards the dung gate. Dung gate wasn't not a fancy name. <laughs> sort of speaks for itself. That it's a southern tip to, near the Pool of Siloam. Most of you will have heard of the Pool of Siloam. And the dung gate was where garbage was taken out. Uh, many would say in the life of the believer that this was the intercessory gate where you deal with your garbage. And everybody in the rebuilding of your life have to deal with your garbage. You have to, you have to build that dung gate up. Um, this is not working completely in its image, but... You need to have a prayer life. This is the place in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 where King Manasseh sacrificed children uh, to idols in this valley right there. And so the gate of prayer is critical in rebuilding your life. And then, of course, that leads to the next one was the fountain gate. And the fountain gate speaks of the living word and the outpouring of the spirit and living water that needs repairing as well. And then moving along, there was the horse gate that stood on the stood on the north beside the temple. It's where wicked Athaliah was executed in 2 Chronicles chapter 23. Um, it reminds us of warfare, the horse gate. Lord would say some trust in horses and some trust in chariots. Uh, and then it was repaired, the horse gate was repaired by the priests as well. And, and moving along, you get to the eastern gates. Many have heard of the eastern gate. The eastern gate leads directly to the temple. It's known as the golden gate. Um, before, before Christ, this was the one that Jesus would enter. Uh, sorry, during the, during the days of Jesus, he would enter on Palm Sunday. They would, it was the, the gate on Palm, Palm Sunday. His, historically, in 16, the 16th century, Suleiman the Magnificent, he sealed it because this was the gate in which Messiah was going to come back through. And those of you who have been, been to Jerusalem, you'll know on that one side, there's this big, beautiful gate, but it's completely sealed off. And that's, of course, it, it, no one's, the gate's not going to stop the Lord from coming and walking through the gate. But it just shows the foolishness of man. But this was the gate, uh, and the gate called Beautiful. And in Ezekiel, in chapter 10, he saw the glory of the Lord depart through that gate. But it's also the gate where the Lord's going to return, and the glory is going to be restored once again through that gate. In Jerusalem. Just interesting to note. But the, the interesting, another interesting thing for me as you do the, these next few scriptures from chapter 20 to 31, and I'm coming to the application. Um, when, he t when they talk about the gate that was closest to their house, there's certain things that are a little closer to home for you and I, certain things that resonate a little deeper for you and I. But they, they would fix the, the, that part of the gate that was next to their house or next to their own home. And you can read down where the, pre the priest would look after this horse gate. So pardon me, I'm going down a little bit further. And then Hananiah, 
And they all did, etc. The last gate was the inspection gate, was the most vulnerable for attack. And, um, and each had a job, each had a part, and no person, no one person could have ever done it alone. All right. Now the application. Um, um, here's what you'll find when the Lord invites you to be part of his mandate of building the kingdom. You find he'll place you beside people that were different than you. And, and, and it's the greatest opportunity for you now to become aware of what's going on in your life, not in their life. That relationship will reveal more about you than it does about them. You're never meant to change another person. You have the authority to change yourself. I want to talk about relational EQ. I've talked many times about relational warfare. I want to talk about emotional intelligence. We're to love both our neighbors as well as our enemies. The deposing of the enemy and restoring life for you and I is, is part of our warfare. There's a young lawyer named John Kelvin who said, without knowledge of yourself, there's no knowledge of God. I, I would agree with that. How well do you know yourself? His thesis, which I would submit to you today, is the more aware you are of yourself, the more aware you'll be of God. Think of that. How in touch are you with your motives, your emotions, your defaults, and your desires? Daniel Goldman shook the world with his theory on emotional intelligence. And he would, he would say that emotional intelligence is more important than intelligence intelligence, <laughs> intellectual intelligence. Um, he defined five components of emotional intelligence, but the primary one, none of the other four would work unless you, first of all, had the highest of emotional intelligence, and that is being self-aware. This is such a profound statement, I think. If you were to, if you were to make a list of somebody who is spiritually mature, one of the first things that you would discover of someone who had an authentic, strong, and growing relationship with the Lord is they are aware of themselves. They are aware of their impact and how their decisions impact other people. They're aware of what takes place in another's world may be a result of some of their actions. You find spiritually immature people just doing their own thing. Doesn't matter what others think. But Jesus would exhibit supreme emotional intelligence. Um, how do we improve our emotional quotient? First of all, show interest in other people. I've told you before the surprising amount of people that you try to have a conversation with just want to talk about themselves. Emotionally intelligent people are interested in others. Spiritually mature people are interested in others. Emotionally intelligent people learn their own triggers. They own their own emotions. They observe others. If there was, in real estate, there's three laws of real estate. Location, location, location. In relationships, there's three laws. Observation, observation, observation. You can't love someone and not observe and notice what they like or dislike. One of the greatest 
signs that somebody is loving you is they're actually observing you and then trying to help meet your need, not whining that you're not meeting theirs. It's wonderful to me when my wife makes me a massive bunch of desserts. Has nothing to do with need. It has everything to do with sheer love and devotion to her husband. Why? Because she's observed how much I like pie. <laughs> she's observed that. I'm telling you the truth. Um, I'm going to share some things be, about love and life because you'll never meet somebody who succeeded in life but failed at love. It's the highest quality, and it's our great goal in life, is to learn to love. You'll never find somebody who failed at life, but learned to love. Because loving in life makes you successful in life. Find somebody who could not love and made a whole bunch of money, and at the end of his life, what would he say? I don't know, I don't get to talk to many people like that, but I'm assuming he'd say, I wish I would have learned about love. Jesus said it's, there's no greater thing than to learn to love. <clears throat> Spiritually mature people forgive quickly. It's the number one healer of relational disorders. Forgiveness. Have you learned to forgive? Well, no, have you learned to forgive quick? <laughs> uh, Spiritually mature people take responsibility for their actions. They respect differences of other people. They live offense-free and they learn not to judge because it comes back. They learned that. One of the most powerful, come here, the most powerful evangelistic tools that you and I could employ in our life is simply learning to love. We don't have an evangelism problem, we've got a love problem. Jesus said this, he says, they will know that you're my disciples, how? That you have love one for another. Not that you have nice warm feelings sometimes, but your actions are actually conveying that you show interest in another person. Do we love our city enough to act? Do you love your neighbor enough to act? Do you know that love that person on the wall with you that's working on the wall with you? Lord, show us the people who are working beside us how we can love them. It's a big deal. I'm still shocked at the level of anger, cowardice, and disrespect that's revealed on social media. A people that call themselves followers of Christ and they're using language of hate. The Bible says that love is kind. Have you? One of the most attractive things, I'm trying, I, here's what I'm trying to do in my marriage. I'm just trying to be kind to my wife. I've learned to be saying please and thank you. I just give you a big tip there. You're probably more advanced than that. You probably don't keep track of wrongs and you probably have further ahead, but I'm just trying to be kind. <clears throat> What would happen if you were just kind to your neighbor? What would, it, what would it be like if you were just kind to your kids? What if it really is cool to be kind? What if you were kind to your enemy? So kind that he was no longer your enemy. I'm just talking about repairing our life and the people that God placed around us and the people that he's placed close to us to love them. Every believer's a builder. What's in your hand? Here's the phrase that goes on all through the chapter 3. This phrase, next to. Somebody was working, and next to him was, and next to him was. Here's my question to you today. Who's next to you? 
Jesus, in terms of defining the rich young ruler, said, okay, who is my neighbor exactly? Here's, here's who your neighbor is. It's one next to you. <laughs> you wish you would have picked a different seat, huh? <laughs> Who's next to you? Who's next to you in your family? Who, who's living next to you? Yeah, but you, Lauren, you don't understand. They're difficult. Yeah, all of my neighbors are difficult. It ever occur to you that you're difficult? <laughs> this, is, this is, how's your emotional quotient? Um, <clears throat> learning to resolve conflict. The invitation, to, the ability to be rude and selfish and sinful is unlimited for us. We can't, we, can't, we can't even blame that on our sin nature because Adam and Eve were able to do it and their nature was pure. It's human, I guess. The invitation of the cross was not reserving a cabin for you in eternity. It was an invitation into a family to learn to get along. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11, I'm going to ask you how consistently you do this. Those of you who say you believe in the Bible and live like biblically, etc. Here's what it says to do. I want to know how often you do this every day. Encourage one another and help build them up. How are you at putting courage into other people? This is being, this is, and encouraging is not that hard. And everybody has the ability to do this. It says when we do that, we're actually building them. When I build, here's how I build the church, by building people. Here's how you build your life, by building others. How, 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 I, I write it in my journal most weeks, encourage three people today. Seems like a fairly small thing. Because, but there's people all around you all the time. Yeah, well, what if it goes to their head? Oh, whatever. What if it helps them? What if actually they, they, they are just like all this, they're all, they're making themselves look all that big because they feel all that small inside? What about that? Have you ever found when someone encourages you, it goes to your head and you think you're like the king of the world or something? You go, gosh, I needed that. Every one of us have the ability to encourage another person. It, said, it says this, therefore encourage one another and help one another. Connection is powerful. God uses people to form us. Let me tell you about a little bit of research. That, that, and, and, and this is the world over. In looking for what makes people happy in life. Just another key, if you're interested. What makes life work? What makes you happy? It's not money. It's not health. It's not IQ. It's the presence of a life-giving, meaningful relationship. Paul invites us to be rooted and grounded in love. Well, that's a big deal. Love needs an object. How are you doing at loving someone? How are you doing at loving others? This is the big deal of building your life. Disconnected people, listen to this, are two to five times more likely to die from any cause uh, than those with close ties to family, friends, and relationships. Isn't that interesting? Connectedness will help you live longer. You can have bad habits. You can smoke. I'm just, I'm, I'm saying if you smoke, <laughs> no, I'm, uh, it, it, okay, if you overeat, <laughs> if you have high blood pressure, all that, even physical inactivity but, uh, will not stop you from living long if you are connected. Statistically, you'll live longer than those with great health but are disconnected. Isn't that amazing? I think that's fascinating. I like... I find Winston Churchill interesting as an illustration. He was deeply connected to his family, his friends, his nation, and had a great marriage. He had horrible health habits. He, his diet was terrible. He smoked cigars all the time. He drank way too much. 
He had weird sleep patterns. He had a total sedentary life. He lived into his 90s. When asked, is he exercise, he said, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died exercising. (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Social research says that if you belong to a group, you cut your risk of dying next year in half, which is our new slogan for groups, join a group or die. (laughs) John John said this, he said, anyone who does not love remains in death. What if there's something to this? In isolation, we suffer, but also those around us get cheated of the love that God intended for them. Connectedness is marked by servanthood. Paul said this, he said, let your freedom be used to serve others, uh, sorry, serve one another humbly in love. Instead of using your freedom to serve yourself, he said, use your freedom to serve others. The early churches says they met together, they ate with gladness and sincere hearts. This is, this, is, this, is, this is statistically all over. So I'm giving you this relationship quiz in the next two minutes. I want you to answer one of these questions. I'm going to ask you this. You don't have to put up your hands or just in your head. Uh, when something goes wrong, do I have at least one person I can easily talk to about it? Yes or no in your head. Do I have a friend I can drop in on any time without calling ahead? Is there someone who could accurately name my greatest fear or temptation? Do I have one or more friends who I meet with regularly? Do I have a friend I know well enough to trust their confidentiality? If I receive good news like a promotion, do I have a friend I would call immediately just to let them know? If you can't say yes to most of those questions, I suggest that you join a group. Or invite somebody out for coffee and learn to love. I'm going to close. Do you know the impact you have on other people? Are you self-aware? Do you know how your emotions, your actions impact others? What kind of a team player are you? Can you see how your negative day impacts those around you? What what would it be like if you stopped using your emotions as a filter to your actions? What kind of a builder are you? Would somebody want you on their team? Are you constructive? What are you willing to do for the sake of unity? I promise you, your likability will go through the roof if you simply learn to consider others more than yourself. I think that the Bible has something for us to learn. I'm going to close with making this statement. Jesus, I believe, was the most emotionally intelligent human that ever walked the earth. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and check out our website at myc3church.ca. See you next week.